Life Audio. Welcome again to Truth Tribe. This is Doug Rothheis. This is where we seek truth through reason and evidence about the things that matter most and perhaps have some fun along the way. I am recording from the well-hidden philosophy bunker. This is podcast foundation number four. The first podcast foundation was about my life and what I have studied and researched over the years and why you may want to consider listening to me. The second one had to do with the Christian worldview, which I believe and defend. The third was defending the Christian worldview that's called apologetics in a nutshell. And this podcast is on biblical ethics or Christian moral philosophy. We all need to have some framework for thinking about right and wrong, good and evil. We need some standard for how we act in the world, the kind of moral judgments we make, the activities we're involved in, what we commend, what we condemn, what we think is neutral. So I like to talk about the relation of the Bible to ethics. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. First of all, I affirm the Bible as completely true in all that it affirms. It is the standard for truth and applicable to the whole of life. And a classic text on that is from 2 Timothy 3, where Paul is writing to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That relates to the Hebrew Bible, but by extension, relates to the New Testament as well, since the New Testament is really grounded in the authority of Jesus and the authority he gave the apostles. And I have made that argument in Christian Apologetics in much more detail. So what does this mean that the Bible is our ultimate authority that is completely true? Well, first of all, the Bible is a guide. A guide tells you where safe passage is, what places to avoid. A guide tells you where you need to go, where you ought not go, where you may or may not go. So the Bible, put another way, gives us direction. It's also a compass. It's another metaphor. Provides an orientation to life. Now, there are a lot of very specific rules and commands in Scripture, but there's a lot in Scripture that gives us an orientation to life. As you read through the Proverbs, you 
start to understand the value of thrift and hard work. And so in Ecclesiastes, you learn how to deal with hardship without losing hope. Deuteronomy, we say that we should choose life. We agree with that statement. So the Bible is a guide, a compass. It's also a source of examples, moral examples and immoral examples. So we have so many of the great narratives in the historical books of the Old Testament, the life of Jesus and the Gospels. We have a list of faithful people in Hebrews 11, and we can go on and on there. But when we think of the Bible as true and as authoritative, it is a guide, a compass, and a source of examples for morality. Now, the two basic errors you can make in appealing to the Bible for ethics, one, we might call biblicism, although that term can be used positively, but the way I'm using it here negatively is that we might take the letter of Scripture as a moral command without considering the context and where it is placed in redemptive history. So, for example, we might take some prohibition in Leviticus and apply that today when it had a very specific application to the ceremonial law, which is no longer in effect. Or we might say that Christ has perfectly obeyed the ceremonial law for us, and we don't do that today. Or perhaps even in the New Testament, Paul says that women should have head coverings during a church service. Do they need to have that today? Well, some Christians think yes. I think rather the head covering was a sign of modesty. So the principle behind that is that women, as well as men, should be modest in church. The other mistake is called latitudinarianism. And this is the idea that scripture really doesn't have any intrinsic authority, no command structure. There's a lot to think about, reflect on, it might stimulate our imagination, but we can freely edit it. We can cut and paste where we like. This is what theological liberalism teaches, or the modern version of this is what is sometimes called progressive Christianity. And a very terrible example of that is Nadia Boltz Weber's book, Shameless, which I reviewed at the Christian Research Journal. I want to look at three categories of morality in the Bible, law, virtue, and consequences. And I'd like to start with the three categories of law in the Bible, law meaning imperative, not law as describing a set of events, like a physical law, like gravity, but injunctions or commands. So we have lots of commands in the Bible, in the Old Testament, related to the ceremonial law in the life of Israel. And this really drew their attention to the need of mediation and sacrifice, which all pointed towards Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Then we have the elements of civil law, the Mosaic law. You have the Ten Commandments, and then you have what's called case law that deal with specifics, the life of the family and of warfare, so many things. Now, some people want to dismiss the civil law as unrelated to the moral life of the Christian today. I think that's a mistake. I think with the civil law, we have to ask, why was the law there at that time, and what purpose did it fulfill? Because underneath the civil law, and really underneath the ceremonial law too, is the moral law, or the law that is based on the character of God himself, which does not change. So let me give an example from Deuteronomy 22.8. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof, so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Now you think, well, 
I don't entertain people on my roof. What is the point of that? Well, maybe you do entertain people on your roof. And if you do, they need to be safe. If you have a swimming pool, then you need to have a fence around the swimming pool in your backyard because you don't want people to fall in and drown. So the basic principle here is the safety of guests or the safety of the public in general. And that applies across the board in many areas. The third kind of law is the moral law. And this is summed up in the Ten Commandments. I'll come back to the Ten Commandments. But Commandments 1 through 4 relate to our duties to God, and 5 through 10 our duties to our fellow men and women. Another set of three. There are three uses of the law. I get this from John Calvin, The Institutes, Book 2, Chapter 7. First of all, the law is a constraint on evil. It's a kind of barricade. And 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 speaks to this. And we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he has entrusted to us. So law can produce fear of punishment in the ungodly. So the idea of law is a barricade. With respect to civil laws in the United States, remember a line by Dr. Martin Luther King, who said, a law that protects me against lynching may not make a white man love me, but it could save my life, and that's significant. Second is the use of a law that condemns sinners. This is called the pedagogical use of a law. When we consider the Ten Commandments and we inspect our conscience in light of them, we realize how far we fall short of obeying God from the heart in all those areas. Or read through the Sermon on the Mount and ask yourself how well you are obeying what Christ wants us to do, how he wants us to live. So the law drives us to the cross for forgiveness and for receiving the atonement that only Christ can give us. The third use of the law is guidance for the godly. The law is, in this sense, a yardstick. Now, we need to understand that when we are called to do good works in Scripture, we have to know what works to do. So we need to follow God's commands, and those are summarized, I think, in the Ten Commandments, but we also have a lot of specific commands. So this is the law as a yardstick. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. All right? We don't obey them in the flesh. We need to submit to the power of Christ within us to obey them. Let me talk a little bit about the uniqueness of the Ten Commandments. I follow the Reformed tradition, particularly the Calvinist Reformed tradition, on viewing the Ten Commandments as really the essence of the moral law. Now, the event of the revelation of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19 is significant because it is occasioned by very special signs to show the significance of what is to come. The Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, are often called the Torah within the Torah, or the language that the Westminster Larger Catechism uses is that the Ten Commandments summarily comprehend the moral law. And you see the Ten Commandments throughout Scripture, either quoted directly or alluded to. So let's consider understanding the commandments. I'm not going to read through them, but... I'm taking this again from the Westminster Larger Catechism, which has a superb exposition of the Ten Commandments. 
We need to understand the Ten Commandments in light of their original situation and the larger canonical setting, particularly the New Covenant and the Sermon on the Mount. So we don't want to simply view the Ten Commandments in terms of how they would have been understood or received by the original hearers. We do, but we now want to understand how they would be related to us given the New Covenant, given the coming of Christ. So it's the idea really of progressive revelation. Not that anything previously is annulled or canceled, so to speak, but rather that we have more knowledge. So the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount deepens our understanding of covetousness. For example, the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. And Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, it's as as if you have committed adultery. So he's really dealing with two commandments. They are not to commit adultery and not to covet. So if you covet a woman, speaking to men there, then it's tantamount to adultery. We also want to consider the two tables of the law. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, to love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And traditionally, the Ten Commandments have been understood as the first four commandments relating to our duties to God, and the last six related to our duties to others. But really, every command pertains to God and to our neighbor. For example, if we serve a false god, we're going to not treat our neighbor properly because our fundamental orientation to life will be wrong. If we don't rest properly, the Sabbath commandment, this will be bad for our neighbors, our family, and so on. But traditionally, they've been divided up that way. Now, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, There are eight principles for interpreting the Ten Commandments. I'm simply going to talk about three, and then I'll talk about the virtue aspect of moral authority, biblical authority, and the consequence aspect. And yes, you may hear me grabbing tissues now and then. First, with the Ten Commandments, what are the duties required? So, what obligations are placed upon us by the particular commandment. For example, you shall honor your mother and father. What does it mean to honor them? And what is the reference range of mother and father? This has been often understood to mean to honor and respect your elders. So you wouldn't say, I can, I should honor my mother and father, but forget about my grandparents. Or I can honor my mother and father, but forget about my aunts and uncles. So this is about honoring respecting our elders. Second, what are the sins prohibited? So, for example, with honoring your parents, the sins prohibited would be things like cursing them, seeking them harm, and so on. Thirdly, what are the blessings of obedience? Uh, Let's take the Sabbath command. If you take one day a week to rest and replenish and to worship God very specifically with others, that is a blessing to you. It will give you a better ordered, well-regulated life. All right. So that's a brief tour through biblical law. Let's talk a bit about virtue. The scriptures actually call us to be a certain kind of person. So it's not just that we obey commands in terms of externally doing things, but we want to have the right inward orientation to how we live. So That is, we want to be people of virtue. And there's a whole tradition in ethics, which predates 
Christianity with the Greeks, in some ways, of virtue ethics. You see this in Plato and Aristotle. But I'm not going to worry about them. I'm going to talk about biblical ethics. And virtue has to do with the habits of the heart, your affections. So the biblical view is that we pursue godliness and avoid godlessness and worldliness. So think of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is Galatians 5, 22 and following. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So, the fruit of the Spirit have to do with virtue, being the right kind of person from the inside out. And then think of virtue in relationship to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as teaching, preaching, leading, so many gifts listed. The gifts of the Spirit should always be administered according to the fruit of the Spirit. And in some cases, people with very obvious gifts, especially teaching and preaching, can get a lot of results and a lot of respect and adulation, but not really be living virtuous lives, not being filled with the Spirit and not having the fruit of the Spirit. But we wouldn't want to say, well, my teaching is helping so many people, it doesn't matter that I'm dishonest with the church finances. No, you have to be the right kind of person, a person of honor and integrity. And you don't simply look at the results to justify who you are and what you're doing. So another way of putting this is don't let the gifts get ahead of the fruits. God's work in you is prior and more important than God's work through you. And we have to beware of what Paul called the works of the flesh or the acts of the flesh, which are Galatians 5.19 and following, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.19-21 through 21. So we have the category of law from Scripture, the category of virtue, and then the last category is consequences. That is, we want to do good works. We want to do as much good for as many people for as long as possible without breaking God's law or grieving the Holy Spirit. And we do this in line with our particular gifts and opportunities or our calling. And we should be zealous for good works in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to have zeal and knowledge, not zeal without knowledge and not knowledge without zeal. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we can really summarize these three categories of morality derived from the Bible with a well-known verse, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Well, that's duty, requirement, to act justly. Well, that's consequences. And to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly is virtue. So I hope in these 22 or so minutes, I've been able to explain a little bit about how to approach the Bible in terms of moral philosophy or understanding ethics from a biblical point of view, 
I will have more in the show notes, related readings, and more on the scriptures and so on. But what we're trying to do is build a good foundation for the podcast where I will deal with specific issues like gender ideology, abortion, uh, racial issues, and many others, many apologetics issues. But we want to have a foundation of a biblical worldview and apologetic defending that worldview in some sense of how we approach the Bible when we consider moral questions. Now, our next and last foundation podcast will be on a biblical view of culture and society. So I'll be developing a theology of culture that is certainly consonant with this view of ethics that I've given you, but goes into some more specific details into what is culture, how Christians can contribute to culture, critique culture, and so on. So if you'd like more information about me, Doug Grothuis, you can go to my webpage, douglasgrothuis.com. I'm also on Twitter at Doug Grothuis and am on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. This is Chris Christensen, and back in 2006, I started a simple project, a project to try and introduce more people to the Bible through Bible study called the Bible Study Podcast. It's a simple name and a simple idea. Each week, every week, we study one chapter of the Bible, talk about what it says, and what that might mean for us today. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for the Bible Study Podcast on your favorite podcast app.